but I think that the um, the, the point is, is well taken that if, if you haven't checked the patient, if you don't know where there's trouble walking, then you do have a problem. As long as we understand we're not trying science here, we're, we're trying in, in the court of public opinion. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry. God, we're here again, Rick. Risk Management Monthly coming to you February. 2017. You bet. You know, the year is moving along at breakneck speed. Unbelievable. It seems like only yesterday we were recording again, but uh, time passes on. Um, you know, I think that, that you know, before we get to our letters, which we uh, still have lots of to cover, I want to bring up a case uh, that went, or a bill, which has just come out of the New Hampshire legislature. This is Senate Bill 417. It is now codified into law as as we do this uh, uh, recording. And it's it has to do with the question of prohibiting non-compete clauses restricting physicians in their professional activity. That's really interesting because I remember a physician that you and I well know who had mm. a, a large group, and he would advertise that there was no non-compete clauses. In there. Right. I, I think you know who that is. He is since deceased. Yes, actually. yes, yes, I know that. Uh, just, But the, the point is this isn't related just to emergency physicians, and it's very interesting that the, um, the firm, the law firm that gave the opinion on the bill said – the way the bill is written, it has to do with the it uses the word doctor and physicians. It doesn't use the term physician extenders, PAs, all this sort of thing. So they feel the way this law is written, it it extends to doctors. But basically, what they had to say was, um, you know what, you can't set up a lot of limits uh, for these people. And that we, what we really need to realize is that physicians get to function. Now, all of our listeners should understand this is a state-by-state state question. Some states will allow you to enforce these things, some won't. But at least in New Hampshire, the, uh, the question is properly raised, uh, what can you actually do? Now, having spoken uh, to a lot of residents, they understand none of this stuff, Rick. Uh, you know, they're out looking for jobs. They have no idea what any of these things are in contract, but they need to have somebody look at that document who, whether they can get it changed or not, is not the question. The question is, if they're going to put their name on that piece of paper, they ought to understand that there are still places where there are going to be <clears throat> limitations, uh, not only while they are working for a particular organization, but there may be post-service restrictions, i.e., if we lose the contract, you can't stay here. You have to be gone for the next six months, that sort of thing. And I promise you, very few residents understand these sorts of well, questions. Well, what was this regulation? What do they say? You can do it? You can't do it? What they, what they basically say is... 
that the answer lies partly in, in, in the fact that the bill itself limits its reach and basically says that physicians, uh, it, it, it curtails the amount of restrictions you can put on doctors. And so basically this is a pro-practicing doctor bill as opposed to, and in New Hampshire there are a lot of people who are employed by hospitals, that sort of thing. And it basically says the hospital cannot, the, pro, the, the prohibition um, cannot be applied to most of these people. And that means that uh, they can go other places, they can work for other people, and you can't threaten them with that, uh, with a, a firing, as a way of controlling the situation. Well, you know, I think that um, you could understand why contract holders would not would want to have non-compete clauses, fearing that the physicians may come together and form a little mutiny on the bounty and um, take the contract away from the contract holder for some reason, and this would. That would be precluded if you could not work in the area. But should this should not be confused with a torturous interference of contract. If while they're still under uh, working at a particular hospital and they go together, form a group, then approach the administration, that's a different question. That is torturous interference of contract. They have a fiduciary responsibility to act in support of their of their employer uh, up to that point in time. This basically says doesn't talk about having a contract any place. What it says is you cannot limit their activity at other institutions. So this isn't about getting together and stealing the contract. This is about hey, can we actually come up to you and say look? You know, there's a hospital 25 miles away, but we don't want you working there because uh, you're our competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. We don't want you advantaging any other hospitals you know, with your it. excellence. Yes, uh, yes, sir. Yeah. So uh, just just to keep people up to date, uh, this is another state which is at least looking at Isn't the question. Isn't like 30 doctors in New Hampshire? Yeah. 32, it, I think. There's got to be 32 or something like that. Okay. But I think that uh, it is interesting that uh, these these things are still being discussed and the questions are real. So here you go, an email. Um, this fellow works at a relatively small hospital, and three of the four ENT doctors on staff have opted to relinquish their staff privileges in order not to have to take call, despite the fact that 24/7 call is, was currently is currently not required. You know the idea here is uh, your call has to be reasonable. It's not 24/7 call no call. It is well we have an ENT doctor one out of five days or four days or three days, um, and so this is very negotiable. And yeah, I'm sure that if there's some kind of a emptolic violation or the like, that they're going to come up and try to decide whether your call panel is reasonable. But these guys went off. Yes, I, I understand what they did. <laughs> Let's break it down. If you have 10 E&T guys on staff who are actively operating, 
you better have ENT coverage uh, at the place. Nobody's going to consider one in every 10 nights, something like that, unreasonable call. If there's two people or three yes. covering uh, uh, three, 365 days a year, maybe tough. You know, and, and maybe unreasonable. Maybe unreasonable. And what they may need to do in those cases is say, you're right. On uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we have ENT coverage. We don't the other days, and we have to send them off. As long as they do that in a predictable manner, they're not, for example, cherry-picking people with insurance, uh, performing that kind of examination on a patient before they decide to come in. I understand it. You know, there's a lot of small towns in um, in uh, upper Michigan where there's one orthopedic surgeon on staff. He may be covering two or three hospitals at some of these small places. Now what you're saying is they want no call responsibility, yes. and that is all they do is resign, resign, and everything depends on what they're allowed to do. At some hospitals, you can be on courtesy staff or associate staff, do maybe four operations a year, that sort of thing, and not have the other obligations. Well, that's what these guys are talking about. Exactly. The executive committee, in order to deal with this crisis, is considering the establishment of an affiliate staff category that does not have to take call, but their number of cases would be limited to 12 per year. 12 per year is not, is not nothing. Yeah, that's, that's actually for ENT surgeons who, you know, some mornings they, put, they operate on 12 kids putting in uh, uh, temp tubes and that sort of thing. It, it's not a lot, Rick. So the writer says, what are the Imtala implications? And so we contacted our Imtala expert, Bob Bitterman. Yes. Who, uh, when I was uh, in Arizona for Christmas, mm-hmm. and there was a big gathering for dinner there, one of the persons there was, a, well, the couple was a pretty much pro bridge players. Yes. And I said, do you know Bob Bitterman by any chance? And they, and they, and they didn't. But while I was there, I went on to my telephone and went to this bridge ranking thing yes and dr bitterman it was it was about 430th in the uh galaxy i believe or at least in america yeah i think it's probably pretty high 430 don't you think yeah bob's a master and he's been doing this since i think he was in high school he was also a uh, big time chess player and uh, and and uh, Bob is uh, is a terrific guy. I'm glad he keeps talking to us about this. Don't keep us in suspense, Rick. What did he say? Bob said the more the ENT doctors do at the hospital, like consults, admissions, and surgeries, the more likely CMS will view than this will view the necessity to have an ENT call panel. Yes, the panel need not be 24 seven, but it should exist in some reasonable extent. He says it's a facts and comparisons analysis. Correct. Um, if but the, what that means, though, Rick, is that if they violate this agreement, this 12 cases a year sort of thing, uh, then there may be a problem. But, you know, if they have minimal actual operative uh, activity, I think that uh, they're going to succeed on this. I don't think CMS is going to come back. 
uh, and say with that kind of involvement, that's pretty limited. They're not going to come back and say you've you've got to have you know all this uh, call panel stuff. And I think Bob's right on that. It's a comparison thing. If this is a tenth or a fifteenth or a twentieth of their operative schedules, uh, you know it's going to be very hard to make them take call, I think. There are three things doctors don't want to do. They don't want to take emergency department call because a lot of times, sometimes, they don't get paid. There's no guarantee. Second thing is they don't want to have to be on committees of the hospital. And if you're doing 12 operations a year, to show up at the surgery department meetings to to have to review charts, have to do all the things that physicians do. They don't want to, they just don't want to do it. And third, they actually don't want to pay those dues and everything else that goes along with being on the staff. Well, how, uh, about, how about a fourth? The idea of just having to leave your dinner and go in to take care of a nosebleed or be woken up at one o'clock in the morning to take care of a, some kind of uh, impacted foreign body in the uh, uh, upper airway or ex- something like exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, I it's don't... It's a hassle. They get cases to do in the morning. You and I are emergency docs. We naturally think they have an obligation to help us out. But at a certain point, it's, it's not worth it to them, and we have to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, this is a, is a complex matter because I think it's one of those things that many hands... Yes, light work right. kind of thing, and uh, it is not required to be twenty four seven kind of thing. So I think that um, these guys could help out. They, I think, have an obligation to the community to walk away and say, "There's three of us, but we're not going to do any of us." Is uh, I don't think that's right. The other thing is, is that you have to remember most physicians. Uh, training was sponsored by the federal government. Yes, we understand that. We Now, I know you have big med- uh, loan bills and all that, but frankly, I have no sympathy for this loan stuff. Right. You get out of your residency, and day one, you're making $280,000. Now, tell me you can't pay off your loan in some reasonable period of time. Over the next 10 years. I have no sympathy for that whining. I understand, Rick, but I think that we're going to have to come to some agreement here in this country that there are a lot of smaller hospitals which should not be... There are only certain things they should do on a regular basis. It's more than just the doc showing up. It's the maintenance of the equipment they need to do certain things. It's the surgical staff. It's all kinds of things which say in in selected cases, these people need to be sent to major medical well, centers. Well, these ENT doctors obviously have another alternative for doing um, surgery, like a surgery center that is not affiliated with the hospital Correct. or the like, so that all of those tubes and tonsillectomies and those kinds of minor surgeries are done on an outpatient basis. Right, exactly. I, I think that what he has to recognize is the Amtala decision in this case, no matter what you and I think the right moral position is. It's easy for us to it's talk It's really about us that. for us to say that. I honestly think that this is going to, this trend has been going on, and I don't think it's going away. 
and we're going to have to make some adjustments about it. So uh, I've extrapolated uh, Bob's explanation. He basically says, if the doctors only do outpatient procedures but no inpatient work, then they are they probably can't avoid the ED call schedule, and the hospital would remain in EMTALA compliance. But once they cross the threshold of doing inpatient work, even only on their own patients, Bob thinks the hospital is likely to be in trouble. Uh, well, here's here's the other problem. There's no place where you can submit this for an opinion. Yeah, exactly. From CMS, you either get in trouble or you don't. Yeah, that's like uh, taxes. There's a there's a isn't there a tax thing where you can submit something to that government that says that that, that ask whether this for an is, opinion. Yes, yes, an opinion letter, right? Uh, understand the tax thing is depends on which uh, federal district you're in and all that sort of thing. But you know, I understand uh, this is a uh, this is a problem, but I don't think it's going to weigh. And I think that a lot of these smaller hospitals are going to become twenty uh, four hour urgent cares with an understanding that most things serious things are shipped out. Bob says. That even if the ENT doctors cover only one night a week, it would almost certainly fly with CMS, given there is no requirement for the call ratio. Bottom line, it is the hospital board that must decide what is a reasonable call requirement. Regarding the class of medical staff membership, it is more important what the physicians do at the hospital rather than their class of membership. And I would submit to you, Rick, that if they're providing coverage one day a week, they might as well not provide it at all because uh, then, then you know, which day is it? Do we have it? Don't we have it? Um, at that level of participation, uh, I'm not sure that you're, they're actually providing that big a service to the, to the public. Yeah, but the, what, what if it was one day a week for all of them? Then there's uh, three, three days a week that are covered. Well, Again, you and I can't solve that problem for them. I can't solve it. Uh, yeah, we can't solve can we it. Write it down here. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can put that down. But um, I, I just don't think that this is unique to this gentleman or this situation. Small hospitals have always been in this dilemma, and I'll tell you, most small hospitals aren't doing well financially, even if they got. 12 outpatient procedures a year from these guys, they'd take it because something's better than nothing to those folks. Well, you have to remember that these are a lot of these are critical access hospitals in the middle of nowhere where it, the next hospital is 30, 40, 50 miles away. Correct. So uh, there is, is some support, external money coming to support these things because they cannot be supported locally, but in terms of how the state views it, these people are very isolated. We're going to support them with that critical access hospital. Yep, it, it, and I understand all those arguments, but, but, but by the same token, I think it is reasonably expressed by a lot of these physicians, specialist physicians, that without a certain amount of backup, a certain amount of experienced people, and if you're not doing enough cases at a hospital, all the literature says you're either doing enough to stay good or don't do it at all. I mean, nobody wants their chest opened at a place that does uh, four four chests a year. I seem to have uh, less sympathy than you do. Yes, you what do. Ha- what if you have a nasty nosebleed? 
nasty, and the doctor in the ER cannot stop this nasty nosebleed. This is a frightening situation. The it other is. thing is airway. What if you have an airway problem that you cannot necessarily resolve? And how many, you know, tracheostomies are done in critical access hospitals with some of the doctors being family physicians who are taking coverage in those places? So um, there are certain specialties where I don't need it immediately. ENT is one of them where I may. You may. You may. Rick, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think... Uh, Bob's point is well taken. If they're doing 12 outpatient procedures a year, uh, it's going to be very tough to have CMS come down on that hospital. Okay. All right, Uncle. All right. Wait a minute. Thanks, Bob. If uh, any of you out there need any EMTALA advice, if your hospital is being descended upon by the feds, uh, which is a very frightening uh, experience from what I understand, Um, not that we had to do that, um, Bob's at uh, robertbitterman at gmail.com robertbitterman at gmail.com right moving right. on I got another uh, I got another person who's written and has asked me a question a person I know very well and I've uh, mentored her over the years she's asking us to explain what a medical director is allowed to discuss with a staff physician who has just been sued Okay, we've got to separate our roles out here. You can come in. The physician's been sued. I assume the director, the uh, the medical director, has not been sued on the same case. What you can do is be involved in conversations in which the risk manager and the doctor's lawyer are present, and so they are protected conversations yeah what you can't do is hold your and and outside of any framework just say well i want to talk to you about this case the reason the lawyer has to be there is this is attorney client privilege now if that lawyer is not there and this person's just a risk manager for the hospital and you're starting to chat that's that's discoverable information it may be discoverable depending on the state and i think that people should know what's discoverable any discussion like this in the state of Nevada is discoverable. They can have that information. In the state of South Dakota, no, you can't. So I think that we, we've got to <laughs> declare some some way, shape, or form, <laughs> quality assurance discussions before suit are quite different. Now the doctor's been sued, and they're going to ask him, at the time of deposition, doctor, have you discussed this case with anyone at the hospital? What we want the physician to say is, this has been discussed with uh, risk management and my attorney, which you realize, counselor, are protected conversations. I, I, the general rule in the emergency department is keep your mouth shut. Don't try the case in front of your colleagues uh, anybody without proper protection. And you might want to consult hospital attorney, uh, uh, the hospital attorneys as to what is allowed in your state. But casual conversations about an ongoing lawsuit, I think in a lot of places would be discoverable. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, they'll say, uh, did you discuss this, discuss this case with one of your colleagues? And they say, well, actually, I talked to Dr. Smith about it. 
and they then depose Dr. Smith and say, what did, what did our plaintiff here, I mean our defendant here, tell you about this case? Yep. And, and, and just for those of you listening, and I'm sure a lot of people who listen to Risk Management Monthly are medical directors or quality, quality assurance people, one of the directions you should give your physician is you will carry on no casual conversations about this case while there's a suit going on. If you need to talk to somebody, here's your attorney. Here's the risk manager in in states where that's protected. But you will not carry on idle conversation. And I think that that's absolutely essential. Uh, I don't even want them discussing it with their spouse if they don't have to, because you never know what kind of gets out. Talk about how you feel, but you can't talk about the facts and details of cases nilly-willy. You just can't do that. How about a case from, uh, not a case, but an email from uh, David Dubois? Yes, David. David is writing to us, by the way, from uh, New Zealand. He's just showing off kind of yeah, he's down know, there yeah, yeah. in the summertime and the... Yeah, with and anyway, sheep are all over the place. He's having a great time. Let's have some lamb chops. But uh, he had he has a question uh, re- regarding patients who leave. We made a comment earlier on about you know patients shouldn't need a wheelchair to get out the door. Well, this is in reference to Chuck Pilcher when he was our guest. Yes, I know. It, Chuck, I guess, had a little um, passion about no wheelchairs. And I think Chuck's point is well taken. If the wheelchair is a necessity because they can't walk, what you need to do is find out why they can't walk. Uh, I know that in many, many emergency departments, it's a courtesy that they will use a chair, wheelchair, to take uh, a patient to the front door where the family picks them up with their car, that sorts of thing. But... If they actually need that wheelchair to function at home, that's the question you should be asking. Um, I think when they, whenever anybody says wheelchair to front door, that sort of thing, um, it ought to be because it is a courtesy right. and not because it's required. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a courtesy. He said, well, everybody in the hospital who's admitted to the hospital gets wheeled out to the curb. That's, but the fact of the matter is, is they get in the car, and there's nobody wheeling them out of the car when they get home. Yeah. It is, it is a courtesy, and may, and then many times, the walk in the hospital, down the corridors to the front door may be miles, so you know that's perfectly reasonable. We had a case at our hospital, of a um, somebody who had back pain, right? Who was thought to have nothing much. The nurses noted that he had some difficulty walking in their notes and gave him a wheelchair on his, to help him out. Next day, he comes back. He's paralyzed in the legs oh from my the God. spinal epidural abscess. It was, it, was, it was nasty, nasty. And the nurse torpedoed us because the nurse didn't realize the significance of what was transpiring here. Obviously, our doctor missed it, too. You know... That's uh, but again, that's the point. If you stand people up, if they can walk around, um, you know, every time I've left the hospital, 
um, for a couple of admissions I had. They took me down with a with a wheelchair. Well, they probably had four or five people around you, and they had the fe- feathered fans and everything like that. And the, were the trumpeters in front of they, you? As they well? were. They were there as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I but I think that the um, the the point is is well taken. That if if you haven't checked the patient, if you so, don't know where there's trouble walking, then you do have a problem. Right. That's that's not a good thing. Dr. Henry is leaving the building. <laughs> All right. Mike Ritter. Uh, well, I got one more point made right. by this All letter. Right. Uh, they also, this person also wants to know, do we have cases of lawsuits aimed at medical directors for administrative negligence, i.e., we're using an old protocol to deal with, you know, we got a 10-year-old protocol dealing with chest pain. We've got a this or a that. Well, there's a whole litany of things that that are like that that would seem to be worthy of including you in a suit or because something went wrong. Now they're going to go after the director because the director never basically uh, properly addressed the protocol that supposed to you were supposed to follow. It was an old protocol, et cetera. Right. It's easy to bring the director in. Well, it's easy, but I'll tell you, in my experience of lots of years, cases. 2,400 cases, uh, I guess I've seen one time where the director was brought in on this. Almost every time there's another doctor. Right. Or almost every time there is a an advanced provider of some kind, they're all included. This idea that 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 he that the director will be brought in is uh, is let's say it's an unusual event. Here's the other thing: Does the uh, director's malpractice policy cover him for administrative activities? Yes, is, usually. Well. Is he covered by the hospital for administrative activity? See, the hospital can't stand back here and say, well, we're, we're not really to blame. We turned it all over to him. They can't do that. Well, some directors are contractors, though, and others are employees. It, it, it varies uh, one to the other. All I'm saying is it's an unusual event, Rick. I don't think this is the kind of thing that most plaintiff's attorneys, and the smart ones know this, Make a simple case, which is easy for people to understand. And the more you muck it up, the yeah. harder it is for people to say, well, this doctor did it or that doctor did it. Best plaintiff cases are always a doctor or small couple of doctors, a, a one patient and one activity, which was done wrong, that, that did the patient in, Keep so to speak. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Because the more you muck it up, the harder it is to win those cases. Well, I'm like a dog with a bone because yeah. uh, over this idea of not using the fact that the department was grossly o- overcrowded, patients' care was, as a result, um, in- inadequate. Yeah. And whose responsibility? The, the hospital did not staff it with adequate nurses. The ER group had uh, not enough physician coverage, something so that the patients had to wait a protracted period of time, and in the result, somebody got hurt. What if there's so much staff that they're standing around talking to each other 
and I don't care not about, taking I want, care. I want mine. mine. I, I want mine. <laughs> I understand that. You said that. You are think, a dog with a bone on this issue, and all I'm saying is if those cases are out there, I want to see them. I just haven't seen the cases. Dr. Durlett is the fellow who yes. wrote this nice piece about the idea that crowding is a safety issue. Yes. And I agree with him. I, I don't disagree, but hospitals have to function uh, with their own limitations. And you and I know that there are hospitals which cannot staff to make sure everybody's seen within 20 minutes. They can't do it, Rick. All right, Mike Ritter. Mike uh, is a physician who is very interested in these medical legal matters. He yes. is at uh, Orange County. Come on, help me out here. Uh, I'll think of the hospital that he's at. Yep. But anyway, he sends us articles out of the Horty Springer newsletter. Mm-hmm. And this one deals with Imtala being applied to an urgent care center. Yes. Which is really pretty interesting. The essence of the issue, a deceased person's estate claimed that a a hospital-owned urgent care center failed to do an adequate medical screening exam, and the patient went home and died of an MI a day after the visit. The hospital claimed that the urgent care center did not constitute a dedicated, quote, this is a a dedicated emergency department under EMTALA and therefore was not required to comply to EMTALA standards. The court disagreed because the urgent care center held itself out, quote, as a place that provides care for emergency medical conditions on an urgent basis without requiring a previously scheduled appointment, unquote. So a motion for summary judgment was denied. This was a Rhode Island case. Right. We don't know the outcome of this thing, but the idea is, I mean, for, for all we know, the, the urgent care center and the hospital got off. But the idea that a judge would say an urgent care center has to follow EMTALA rules if you're owned by the hospital is kind of interesting. Well, what, we, what would be very germane in this discussion with the court is, do they bill under the same biller provider number that they bill that emergency department. Well, if they do, then it's very hard for them to claim this is not a part of the emergency department. Most urgent care centers in the country are, are they function like doctor's offices. They're not owned by the hospital and they have a different fee structure than the average emergency department. That's what makes them, competitive in some way shape or form if this hospital's urgent care is billing with the same codes and and rates same number is sent into both places then i think maybe the maybe i think that 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 may be a problem for the hospital and the uh and the doctors it would be nice to know the outcome of this case this is frederick versus S City Hospital Healthcare System. Yep, uh, whatever that. Rhode, means. Uh, can, yes, uh, the jurisdiction is Rhode Island. So, Mike, if you're listening, tell us how this case turned out because it does raise um, uh, so, some interesting issues. Interesting. Uh, this yeah. is this is a big deal. Well, no, this is frightening. Right. Exactly. And uh, for everybody who, for the people who were not there. There were interesting discussions at at ASEP in October about 
emergency docs running freestanding urgent cares, which oh, are owned by the doctors. Don't get me started. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Rick, I'm, I'm going to give I'm you your minute pain. here. I know you're uh, having chest pain. No, I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah, you know, uh, don't start screaming. I'm coming, Elizabeth, either, because we're not going to uh, we're not going to resuscitate you if you go down on this. So, so what do you think? I don't want to talk about it, honestly, because I am in the substantial minority here. Yeah. Um, because I could certainly understand a freestanding emergency department 50 miles out in the suburbs where there's not no hospital. Yep. And But I, I don't understand it when there is a physician-owned uh, freestanding emergency department one block from the hospital. This is a place, this is strictly, we're going to cherry pick those cases. Um, I have a problem with that. And Let, frankly, a lot of them are like that. You look yeah. at the distribution of these things in Texas. Yes. They circle the hospital for crying out loud. Texas is a different situation because they're dealing there with freestanding emergency yeah. departments. That's what I meant. Did I, did I misspeak? Yeah, you used urgent care. Oh, no, no. no I'm talking about freestanding emergency, emergency departments. Department. Yes, I'm That's sorry. a different... That's a different That's question. That's the thing that gets my blood a little. Yes, I understand that. And I know that that pisses off a lot of people well, who I know. Let me I give you the, the counter argument is, if you're so good, hospital, then see those patients quicker, get them in. The only reason they're going to these centers is they got crap care and they had to wait too long and they got bad mouthed and they got this or that at the at the uh, Holy Grail Hospital. And you know that, and I know that, that sometimes you don't get uh, kind, loving, attentive care at our major institutions. Yeah, I guess that that, that if they're EMTALA-obligated, mm-hmm. that may be... That may be the truth to some degree. Yeah, yeah. And the, the problem there is sometimes doctors are very slow to look at themselves and what they're doing wrong and why these things this are happening. This is like happening. a freestanding surgery center. Yes. It's a set up by the doctors to pull off cases from the hospital that are that are minor. And then the hospital says, let us buy in, please, kind of thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, let us do it. Let us be part of the situation here. Um what do you want to do now? Can you want to? Can we do some cases? Well, I mean, what I, about I, these two articles? Are you interested in? Yeah, these let's articles? do these two articles. Yeah, these well, are good. The uh, the first one relates to whether a short term prescription for back or shoulder pain is going to be potentially a precipitant of the, a person becoming addicted to this. Because we are the guys who give out the short term. Uh, medication for right. back or shoulder pain. Here's four thing. days medicine. Yeah. So yeah. this is a study from Johns Hopkins looking at uh, employed workers with back and shoulder injuries. They use this humongous database to follow these people to see wh- what happened to them, what they were using, those kinds of things. They looked at, catch this, 123,096 worker, uh, worker claims were examined between 19... 19- 1999 and 2010, and there were, here you go, there were no apparent consistent association between short and long-term opiate use. For instance, subjects with back pain 
and short-term opiate use were 33% less likely to move on to long-term opiates than subjects who were not exposed to opiates in the acute phase. So what you're saying is we should give everybody a short-term prescription Uh, as prophylaxis. I'm I'm, I'm protecting you from becoming addicted. An addict, right, exactly. (laughs) Now, that related to the back pain. The shoulder pain was uh, was a little different, but the overall conclusion of this paper, short-term use of opioids in this group, back and shoulder, was not associated with long-term use of these agents. Um, I think that should make us feel good, and this should make us also help establish we are not the problem. We yes. are not the problem. Oh, Rick, we're, we're lumped in because the number of prescriptions we write is high. The duration of what we write for is low, and we need to emphasize that. All right. Now you have another one. I, we do. I, I like this one because we just spent some time with some residents. I, I, and after you do this, I'm going to tell you about one resident I talked to there. Okay. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is from Anesthesiology, the journal Anesthesiology, June 2016. So this is pretty current stuff, Rick. Uh, They said, they asked this question, despite the limitations on resident work hours, which went into effect in uh, 2003 and then were upped again in 2011. Libby Zion. This is Libby Zion all over again. Sleep deprivation continues to to be prevalent and may adversely affect resident safety. How do they know that? Hmm? How do they know that? Well, that's because they did a study, Rick, and they did a prospective study performed with the University of Virginia Hospitals. It evaluated the impact of multiple overnight work shifts on driving performance in 29 anesthesiology residents. Um, these, this was uh, mostly men, uh, six, six women, 23 men, and their median age, mean age was 30. So these aren't youngsters. children. Yeah, they're youngsters. You know, they're so young we have to pin their rubber gloves to their sleeves. They're, they're that young. Each resident underwent 10-minute psychomotor vigilance testing for reaction time, that sort of thing, followed by a one-hour driving simulation test. The study outcomes were performed uh, for this test uh, for uh, on those residents who had done... Um, uh, they did the tests at 8 a.m. in the morning after the residents, half the, the control group, had done six consecutive overnight shifts. Now, I'm not sure that that's even allowed anymore. Is that I thought anesthesiology was one of the first things that stopped that. In any event, <clears throat> they had a control group. Well, hold on. Uh, that's six, or six eights or 48. That's 48 hours in a week. That's a, that's. I think you're allowed that. Yeah, yeah, you probably are, versus a control group. And uh, so let's look at what the results were. Residents were significantly more sleepy in the test conditions after they'd done this series of shifts. Now, I don't know about you, but I will admit right now, I'd driven home after a midnight shift one time, and somebody's beeping at me at a stop sign, I'd fallen asleep on the way home. And, you know, is it good to admit no? But I think fatigue driving may be every bit as dangerous as drunk driving. 
Uh, I, th- I think it is a big problem in healthcare, and we have to be honest about it. Driving performance was impaired in the deprived, sleep-deprived group versus the control group, and they had more difficulty with controlling the speed, lane position, use of throttle and steering, and they in the simulated obstacle course, they hit more <laughs> objects. So sort of the bottom line is... Uh, residents who are hit are forced, even if the total number of hours per week is been limited. You know, when you have a series back to back of these night shifts, you do fatigue people. Now, no one has any way, nobody's published the data that I know of that says they do worse on intubations. They're worse at doing this, that, or another thing. But it is interesting that their ability to control motor vehicles was reduced. Which brings up the question, what is the responsibility of the employers of these residents when we can show that this process of six nights in a row makes them potentially more dangerous drivers? Well, if if it was my kid who is the resident who gets killed on the way home mm-hmm. and he's done six overnights, even if the total number of shifts is less, you know, I might be willing to raise that issue against the hospital or the residency program. Well, what happens if it's my kid who is hit by the resident who's driving home? Well, that's due to third party and, and you've raised an interesting issue. Do they then have the right to come back at the employer Sure. The hospital or the residency training program. And the answer to that is, I don't know, Rick. Well, I said, sure. Well, I know you <laughs> said, Jar, show me the cases. And no cases, no nothing in, in med legal. I mean, we can always invent I, something. I got it. So yeah. yeah. My crowding issue, nobody cares about crowding. Nobody cares about sleep-deprived residents. Yeah. No, nobody cares. Uh, okay. What else? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to tell you about this resident who had been a neurosurgery resident and opted out to go in after two years, opted to go into emergency medicine. You mean they found out he didn't have a malignant personality (laughs) disorder? (laughs) Well, well, I have a feeling he was rapidly acquiring one. Mm. Uh, Somehow, programs can get waivers of these hours, that uh, maximum hours, he told me the maximum hours that he was doing in his program was 90 hours. Yep. Can you conceive of that? 90 hours? It it was... I'm sure this, they paid him a, a time and a half for all overtime hours. Though, well, first of all, I didn't know that you could get a, a waiver, and frankly, I don't think you should get a waiver. No, I don't think so either. The whole thing is to protect the residents, and I, I, I would find it very difficult to accept any explanation that would justify 90 hours. You know, at, at uh, a lot of our big academic centers, there's this feeling, you know, they grew up with uh, wooden ships and iron men, and if they could live through it, everybody else can live through it. What they forget is, at the 90% of hospitals which don't have residents— and I'm sure in neurosurgery, 95% of hospitals don't have uh, residents. The neurosurgeons have techs, they have PAs, 
They have people who work with them. You know, the world functions without residents in a lot of places. And uh, to think that this is some sort of torture chamber we have to put them through. It is a torture chamber. Yeah, it's, it's malignant. And I think it does affect, at some point in time, if not their care, at least their attitude. Oh, this fellow basically said that his colleague residents were all becoming jaded. Yeah, jerks. Jerks. You exactly. Know, like, what was that TV show with their... Ben Casey, neurosurgeon, right? Yeah, they're, they're all taking the after that guy who had no humor was a basically a prick. Yeah, you realize we've just dated ourselves. There's nobody. There's nobody <laughs> under the ever, a, under the age of sixty who's ever even heard of Ben Casey. So that's true. Hey, listen, we got uh, three cases. I got three cases. Do you have any cases? Yes, I do, sir. So I got, as you know, Chuck Pilcher, who was our guest a couple of months ago, writes yeah, a. A thing called medical malpractice insights, insights, which is delivered to you on the internet, and it's easy for you to subscribe. Here's the problem: it doesn't cost anything. Oh, gee, why would he do that? <laughs> it's free. Yeah, I know. And then he has about two or three cases, which he outlines. Yeah. Then he makes some comments about them, that kind of thing. Right. So, and I want to give you the address um, to. Enroll in this program, and it's and it's M A D. Yep, M I M I dot com. Mm. Mad Mimi is really <laughs> Mad Mimi. Okay, and, and we'll have this in our notes so that you can subscribe to Chuck's newsletter. Now, I'm going to be very annoyed if you drop a subscription to Risk Management Monthly. Actually, Chuck listens to this; probably takes our cases. Yeah, yeah, I know that. All right, so let's go with uh, number one. Uh, it's entitled "When Missing Influenza Costs Eight Million Dollars." Uh, let's do this case here. All right, here we yeah. go. An eight-year-old child presents to the uh, pediatrician with fever, sore throat, coughing, and a sn- and sneezing for two days. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. She has a history of asthma, pulmonary dysplasia, pulmonary hypertension, and prematurity. Oh, that's getting more interesting. She was diagnosed with sinusitis. Here we go, another sinusitis. Yeah. Didn't we just do a case which was diagnosed with sinusitis? Exactly. And it was much worse. Anyway. And treated with an antibiotic inhaler and decongestant. She worsens. Her mother calls her doctor, who reassures her. She then goes to the hospital with, where a chest x-ray is normal and a test for influenza A is positive. No antiviral is prescribed. She sees good, good. (laughs) This is an eight million dollar good here, Chief. She sees two different doctors in the next four days, and on day seven of her illness, is sent to the ER by her pediatrician with a respiratory rate of sixty and an O2 sat of sixty-seven. When your rate and your O2 sat are the same, that's not good. Not a good thing. No. No. She is admitted and giving Tamiflu, but dies on hospital day three. Oh, God. Her autopsy shows respiratory failure due to H1N1 influenza. A state review panel finds no wrongdoing. He, as, and it's noted parenthetically, as they do in 93% of cases reviewed, 
but a lawsuit was filed. Then we just do a thing where the medical review board said no problem, no problem, and the jury said we got a problem. We think it's one point two million dollars <laughs> yes, exactly. for the problem. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So these medical review boards appear to be uh, on the doctor's side more than not. Yes. Anyway, the mother says my daughter had a fever, sore throat, cough, and sneezing, all symptoms of the flu. She was high risk. H1N1 was rampant and well publicized it at the time. You should have checked her for influenza immediately. Early treatment. Hold on, hold on, Chief. Okay, can we can we do a hold on here? Let's let's bring back some bit of reality. If we so let me give it two more points and I'll be done. All right. Early treatment for a high risk patient like her is recommended by the CDC and would have saved her life. Oh, I, they have oh, data on that, right, Rick? Oh, and her chart showed she was allergic to the antibiotic you prescribed anyway. God. <laughs> yeah. The sinusitis. Yeah, oh, but, by the way. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, there's no evidence that she died from an allergic reaction to the antibiotic. Number two, show me the data that says that that it two, di- two days into an illness, Tamiflu does nothing but take money out of your wallet there's no shortening of the disease process this i can't believe that they lost this case knowing as much as we do about tamiflu both acutely orally for the first 24 48 hours yeah and in the setting of a being admitted to the hospital yes everybody gets it but there's no evidence that i'm aware of that a hospitalized patient has pneumonia or anything like that in association with flu gets any benefit. Well, you know what? When you've got a dead eight-year-old child. Eight million. Eight million. Uh, it, it, what you're looking at here is a sympathy verdict to some extent. Uh, and I and I don't, we actually didn't follow. We don't know all the arguments which were brought up. But the bottom line is I, I can hear the closing argument now. If only they'd given yes. an $80 uh, drug. 125 125 exactly. Thank you, Rick. If they'd given a $125 drug, this child would be playing with her parents today. And you know what? There's nothing, there is no literature, but it's important that we understand lawsuits don't have to be scientifically correct or grounded. Well, this was in the state of Louisiana. <laughs> where the verdict, although it was $8 million, was reduced to $500,000. Right. Because that's the maximum allowable under Louisiana law. Right, exactly. And and I, I know that everybody knew that that was going to happen, but still and all, they're sending a message. Send a message. The message being sent is, maybe you should have looked a little harder at this kid or admitted her earlier. She had a normal chest x-ray. I know, Rick. I mean, we a few we, days before. A few days before, and you can't go just on that. You know, and, and Chuck writes in terms of his takeaways on this is that uh, juries are fickle, science doesn't always prevail. But but he also writes, documenting a differential would have been a good idea. That includes influenza, and a reason why treatment isn't appropriate can prevent a lawsuit. I I honestly don't think that would apply here. Yep. I mean, 
Uh, yes, they call it sinusitis, but it, but doctor, could this also have been the flu? There's a lot of flu going around. Sure, it could have been. Did you want to put it down? Well, it was it was largely irrelevant because she was beyond the time that this medicine would have done anything. Right, exactly right. And as long as as long as we understand, we're not trying science here. We're we're trying in the in the court of public opinion. Then we're okay. <clears throat> Okay. Can I give you a case? Please. Okay. This is a lumbar puncture performed while patient was on blood thinners. Oh, great. Yeah. And now, catch this one. Paraplegia, of course, of course. is the final result. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the money yet, okay? But the plaintiff was a 62-year-old woman who, who was admitted to the defendant hospital with suspected Guillain-Barre syndrome. <clears throat> she underwent two lumbar punctures, notwithstanding the fact that she was taking a blood thinner. Motor impairment of the legs developed following the second lumbar puncture. No imaging or a neurologic neurosurgical consult was sought in the first 24 hours. Now, wait a minute. You're on a blood thinner. We just stuck a needle in there. Now she has a level. She has a spinal cord level. <laughs> And they didn't call somebody? I, I, I don't well, understand know, that very obviously well. Obviously, I don't know enough about this to say, <clears throat> why was it so freaking urgent to um, do a lumbar puncture? Well, there are therapies that can be applied for Guillain-Barre, but... Well, you, can't but, you just empirically imply them? Yes. You see, this I'm like thinking... like meningitis. You don't have to do a lumbar puncture. You just give the antibiotics... And if you can't get get it you, mechanically, I can't get the needle in, whatever it is, you start exactly. the antibiotics. Just hang the antibiotics. Exactly. And that was the argument made in this case. But the matter did not make it to the jury because this is Chicago. This is Cook County. They settled this um, uh, with, with the family uh, before... They settled it on threat of suit. The lawyer got the money before he filed the <laughs> papers and said, if you don't Good produce work. this kind of money, this is what you get. So anyway, um, <laughs> I wanted to give you a case where their legs went bad <clears throat> and it wasn't a paraspinal abscess. Well, you know, maybe <clears throat> it was just a worsening of Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre is bottom up. So her legs yes. got numb. You know, yes. it wasn't a spinal tap. It's just a progression of her disease. Yeah, I maybe. No, I okay, don't so. I don't think so either. Uh, How much? Uh, Nine million. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. They, the 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 guy the guy frightened him into a whole lot of money. Want another case? Yes, please. Okay. A jailed college student denied medical care commit suicide in the jail. This is in Washington, D.C. The, the, the plaintiff's decedent was a 22-year-old college student who suffered from schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. All right. When taking, when taking his medicine regularly, his condition was under reasonable control, is the, the fact that he was still in college. But, of course, with a lot of college students, how would you know if their schizophrenia is under control? I'm not sure exactly. But just, just go to the calm room. Yeah, but he okay. He but when he was not on his medicine, 
he was he was a problem. During a schizophrenic episode, uh, the decedent was taken by a friend, uh, w- was attacked by a friend. They got in a fight, and he was arrested. While in jail, the plaintiff alleged that the decedent was not given his medicine, even though the jail personnel knew of his condition and the importance of his medication. It was recorded on the intake sheet that he was taking an antipsychotic. The plaintiff also alleged that the decedent was was denied visitations from his mother, uh, who usually had a way of communicating with him and was a calming effect, and... Uh, the f- jail ref- uh, refused a request for mental health evaluation, um, uh, which was requested by the parents. Approximately one month after his arrest, the decedent was found dead, having been hung himself in his jail cell. What the heck is he doing in jail for one month? I have no idea. Rick, we don't have all the facts Obviously here, but not. he's in jail for a month. No meds for a month? No meds for one month. And the family had recorded visits. They recorded when they were not allowed to see him, and they they had recorded their requests for a mental health evaluation on the kid, and he hung himself. So what do you think? Well... You know, we don't know all of the details, but but it sounds like... They denied him his medication, and that this was therefore considered to be a result of that. Um, so I, I'd go 60% that money was changed hands. The only people in the United States who are absolutely guaranteed health care are prisoners. No, prisoners and the military, active military. This guy did not get seen over a period of time. And I think the problem is, it's not that they admitted him that night and he hung himself. The parents have made multiple requests. I think the jail ought to at least have had somebody take a look at him and restart his medications. I mean, I I think that might have been okay. Jails are in the business of giving out meds. The, 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 um, criminal justice system is a filter it picks all kinds of crazy people up why because they if they were brilliant they wouldn't have gotten caught by the by the justice system you know they'd be drinking daiquiris in ocho rios spending all the money that they'd stolen but these people aren't i think i don't think we realize the degree to which psychopathology lives in the uh state in the uh, jails and in the state prisons in oh, this country. I think they do <clears throat> routinely exposés of the L.A. County prison system. Yeah. A substantial, I don't know the percentage, but it's in the 20, 30, 40% neighborhood of the people who are there are uh, have psychoses that... that have gotten there. It's like the, the people in the streets. Right. A lot of the homeless, majority of the homeless, which has been a become a huge, huge, huge problem here in Los Angeles, where there's just tents, one after the other after the other, right downtown, primo real estate, and it's turned into a homeless, and they're 
you know, I think probably, you know, half of them at least must be psychotic. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is this sort of romantic view that the homeless are are intellectuals dealing with the travesties of the system. Most of them really are burned out schizophrenics, alcoholics, drug people, and they do have emotional problems. Okay, listen. They need to be deal with. So you got to bring that home now, if you can, to well, the I emergency department. Very simple. When they bring somebody in from the jail, ask a couple of questions. Uh, well, or they're on their way to jail. What are they on? Can you provide that? Can we get X, Y, and Z done? And I think that that uh, the emergency doc ought to at least to some extent be an advocate for the patient in those situations and see if we can get reasonable medical care for these people. That doesn't have to be everything, and it's going to be no board-certified psychiatrist who wants to go in there and see these folks, but we can at least alert the jailers, those people who are taking him back, that they need. it is important that they have the medicine. After all, if it was uh, insulin they required, would we think that that's important? I would. You know, so why don't we think the same thing about psychiatric medications? Let's do... Do you have another case, or I, I have one? Uh, go ahead, do a case. This is another Chuck Pilcher case. Uh, it's about ankylosing spondylitis. Mm. A 42-year-old software engineer with a 10-year history of ankylosing spondylitis. This is an inflammatory process that begins in the young. And uh, as a result of the inflammation of these joints, it generates bone, connecting bone. In fact, they used to call this bamboo spine, I that's, believe. The, yes, they, that's still in the books. Yes, he experienced severe pain in his back and abdomen, and the next day presented to the emergency department after falling out of his bed. Mm-hmm. He f- informed the emergency physician of his ankylosing spondylitis and concerned that he had a broken back. The uh, emergency physician ordered an abdominal CT uh, that is unremarkable, but in hindsight so shows an unstable hairline fracture in the lower thoracic spine uh, what do you mean in hindsight you mean the the radiologist read it the next day uh there was some, yes it implies that it wasn't read, read online or maybe it was missed you know by the up. radiologist because yeah. actually you know we we all have this experience where you have this teleradiology and they make a reading and then the in-department radiologist the next day they, they they find something that those guys missed, or vice versa. Yes, yes. So yes. in any case, this thing got missed. Um, the patient was discharged with pain medication and follow-up instructions. The ED physician's report is not entered into the ER record for five days. Uh, during the next 24 hours, he returns to the ED twice, each time reporting his ankylosing spondylitis. On one visit, admission for pain control is advised by the ED physician, but he is discharged from the ED by the hospitalist. Now, this is great. This is, you know, the hospitalist says, I'll make the decision here. And I think it's a a big ongoing problem. Yeah. They don't want to admit anybody. Right. We do, and they don't. Um, Caregivers focus attention on the erroneously negative scan of the belly 
so care is unchanged. Two weeks later, still in pain, he returns to the ER for a fourth time. No, four is no good. Yeah. <laughs> with incontinence of stool with tingling from his waist to his legs. Mm-hmm. A thoracolumbar MRI is ordered. During the procedure, he experiences severe pain while being positioned and loses all function below his abdomen. Oh, God. <laughs> the MRI confirms a T89 spinal fracture with cord compression. He's transferred to a tertiary care center for further care. Now, we could get into the more of this, but, you know, one of the things I, I was kind of surprised at is you can, I don't know whether it's this, what, whether it's this machine or the, or the software, but you can do a reconstruction. You can take a, a CT of the abdomen. Right. And now look, let's look at the vertebrae uh, on this kind of thing. You're looking at a different plane, different angles kind of thing, maybe different densities, whatever. But I forget what it's called. It's, it's called some kind of a reconstruction. Yes. But in any case, apparently that, that wasn't done. And this was missed after four visits to the ED. And on the fourth visit, they did the coup de grace when they turned them on the MRI table. Yeah, let me, uh, let, let me just make a couple of comments. When you and the hospitalist have a disagreement the hospitalist better come down and and redo the exam if he wants to take control of the patient at that moment then step up and take control i hope he just didn't refuse the case and didn't write a note well that would not be good that brings up another matter though you believe this patient needs to be admitted right hospitalist says no he doesn't you have a you have a disagreement here. Yes. How does how does this get adjudicated? Well, I I think in in most situations in my entire career, Rick, I disagreed <laughs> with a couple of attendings like two or three times. It wasn't very much, but I think you have to stick to your guns. This is a different situation now. Now we have these guys, these hospitalists who are in the building, who are busy. They don't want to admit a patient. Well, there's going to be a chief of medicine or a chief of surgery, or there's going to be a chief of that service. And when you say the two of us have a different view on this, help us uh, adjudicate the problem. You know what's going to happen? The patient will get admitted because yes, he doesn't exactly. want to commit and do that. Because it's the safest thing. It's what the if, safest what thing. What if the ER doctor is right for crying out loud? Yeah, well, heaven forbid, right? All right, here's what happened to this thing, because we're running out of time here. $20 million pre-trial settlement. $20 million pre-trial. Oh, jeez. Patient requested also specific conditions that, number one, the learnings from the case be made public in order to improve patient safety, and number two, that he participate on the hospital's process improvement team. The hospital has improved communication and handoffs by using alerts in the EHR and adding a second layer of radiology review mm-hmm. and new processes to review challenging cases. So you need to obviously you need to know about ankylosing spondylitis. It's it's part of the database of emergency medicine. Yeah. And and just how fragile these people are. Exactly. The spine is not a good thing to screw with. Okay. All right. Listen, what time we got here? It's uh, 671. You got 
four or five minutes, if you uh, maybe six or seven minutes, Doctor. Oh, very good. Well, you remember the last time we spoke, um, I talked about the Oakville areas of California, and we talked about the Robert Mondavi, which I had on uh, New Year's Eve. And I asked whether it was in a box. It, it was not in a box, okay? Uh, don't ask that question again, Rick, because I'm not drinking boxed wines. But you snob. Uh, yeah, it's a snob. In any event, there's another winery in that area uh, in Oakville, and it's called by... By sheer coincidence, Oakville Ranch Vineyards. I don't know how they do that. But they have put together a proprietary blend. I mean, it's not doesn't reach the, the, the amount that would give them the ability to call it Cabernet Sauvignon. You've got to have greater than 51% grape to do that in California. But with their blend, uh, they've produced a... Tremendous wine, you know, 92, 93 on the on the scale for about 50 bucks a bottle. Oh, geez. That's well, out Rick, of my range. Rick, I know no. that, but maybe if you buy it at Costco, it's cheaper. I have no idea, you know, but I'm, I'm making the suggestion here that people can buy a very decent wine for decent money. Now, we're going to hit another one. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, and this is about the same price, but it's a name that, that we've bantered around in, in wine since I was a ch- veritable child. Uh, the Louis Martini uh, Winery, which uh, for years produced uh, sort of a lot of wine not too expensive. They've now elevated their activity to about 55 bucks. A bottle. I know that's a lot of money to you, but again, try and get it at Casco. The Louis Martini 2014, the Petite Syrah um, uh, Toman Station uh, Vineyard, and I think you will like this. And again, as Parker says, um, it, it's rare that you get this kind of competitive uh, wine for this much money. One other I want to comment on before we finish, and that is everybody and his uncle has uh, <clears throat> been tasting the wines from a place called Hall. It's the Hall Vineyards, their 2014-2015 um, uh, Jack Masterpiece. Now, I know you're not going to like this when I tell you how much it is for a bottle, but he says this is the competitor of great wines of Europe, great wines, you know, eight hundred bucks a bottle, six hundred bucks. This is available for twenty for uh, one hundred twenty-five bucks a bottle. If you buy a case, you get the ten percent off. Oh, there you go. Okay, there you go. I'm not saying this is for every event, but the uh, Cabernet Sauvignon Jack's masterpiece. Um, Hall Vineyards, buy it. Um, the best wine people in the world think we have now hit a new high. And they say in five years, they're going to be charging the same rate as, as the expense, real expensive wineries of California. You can get in on the gl- ground floor. It's like, you know, buying homes around Los Angeles, 
get in low, sell high. Well, thank you, doctor. Thank you. We got a bunch of wines this time. Yes, we did. And uh, our time, according to the little meter here, is just about up. So I'm going to say thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye-bye.